while I can. To say the least, go on, go east, young man. Go east, young man, go east, young man. Well, it's time for another Table Scraps. Thanks for downloading the uh, Internet edition of Table Talk Radio. We are continuing today our series on comparing different Christian denominations to the Lutheran Church. I'm Evan Gigline. Before we get started here on today's show on Eastern Orthodoxy, I want to tell you there's a few ways you can respond to the things that you hear on today's show. Uh, You can always send us an email at questions at tabletalkradio.org. You can send us a, a voicemail at 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-SOLA. Um, or you can go to the, the website, tabletalkradio.org, and, and the podcast page, and there's a, a place to put your comments uh, right there on the page for this show. And I think there's also a, uh, a Facebook page for our, our little radio show, but since Pastor Wolfman is there, uh, since Pastor Wolfman is not here, I can't uh, shed light on that. So uh, I'll leave that to your own searching Table Talk Radio on Facebook. Uh, but today's edition is talking about Eastern Orthodoxy, and our guest for this topic is Pastor Will Whedon. He's the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. Pastor Whedon, welcome to Table Talk Radio. Thank you, Evan. A joy to be with you all today. All right, let's start our discussion in that of history and uh, uh, take us back to the 11th century and and uh, what issues are, are going on before the Great Schism in 1054, uh, and what are the issues at hand? Well, uh, truthfully, as you look at the, the development of history of, of the Church at that time, you have to say that the balance of the difficulties were Roman, um, Roman overreaches, and some Eastern overreaction to uh, the development of, of, of doctrine, both East and West. So you've got... Uh, uh, you know, the, the papacy claiming that it is, by God, appointed to be the human head of the entire Christian Church, and that it has the right to appoint bishops, and, uh, and you know, that it, it, it controls the entire thing. And you've got in the East people that have never been really, uh, you know, by, by distance, they've never really been under the Pope, and these claims are just outrageous to them. Additionally, you've had in the in the West during uh, the time of development of the the filioque, uh, the, uh, the the addition to the uh, the Nicene Creed of the words um, and the Son, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and over time uh, that became a real hot button issue for the Eastern Church, which was adamant that, that the original form of the Nicene Creed had to be retained, and that this was a falsification. But I mean, things had gone so far in the West that many people didn't even realize that it was an addition that was done, um, in, you know, in the West. And, and uh, in fact, the, the first encounter between East and West, the argument was the, the, the West said to the East, you guys aren't saying the Nicene Creed right. <laughs> <laughs> and they had no idea that it was actually an addition that had come about uh, in, in Spain, Toledo, and uh, that, uh, if you put those two things together, you've got a pretty volatile uh, situation going here. The, 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 the Archbishop or the Patriarch of Constantinople, he, is, uh, n- he does not take kindly to the notion that the, that the Bishop of Rome uh, claims to be the head of the Church. And he certainly, is, there was um, a Patriarch Photius who definitely attacked the West as actually teaching false doctrine um, on, on the, the matter of the filioque. 
um, uh, whether this, the, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Son as he does from the Father. So that, that sort of set up the, uh, the big division. Then they, they fought about a whole bunch of ceremonial stuff, too. Uh, you know, <laughs> at the height of this, this horrendous disagreement between the, the both sides, uh, things that had never been really matters of, of, of doctrine became huge to them, such as is, the, is the, the bread that is used in the Holy Eucharist, is, is this, are you allowed to use flatbread or must you use leavened bread? The, the custom in the East had been to use leavened bread. Um, so, they, you know, the, the, the Rome had an imperial chapel there in Constantinople. Uh, this, this thing really took, um, took fire. The, 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 the Greeks broke into the chapel, trampled on the, the, the host that had been stored in the tabernacle, announced, this is not the blood, the body of Christ, this is not the body of Christ. You know, the, the West was just scandalized, horrified um, by, by such a treatment. But it, it shows how the little things became really, really big in this overall context of, of a fight over the universal uh, claims of the Pope and over addition to the creed, the filioque. Concerning the filioque, um, do you suppose that the, the, the Eastern Church opposed the filioque um, because of its theological implications or, or largely because of the, just the mere fact that you can't change the creed? Uh, I think there was uh, both factors running on. They certainly disagree with the notion that, that any part of the Church could just universally change a creed that had been adopted by a Church council. It's quite similar, in a way, to the, the Lutheran argument about uh, the Augsburg Confession. You know, after it was accepted at Augsburg and presented to the Emperor, well, then Melanchthon kept on tinkering with it, regarding it sort of as his document, since he was the author, and, and he changed it, and finally the Lutheran had to say, no, we mean the Augsburg Confession of 1530, the one that was presented to the emperor. Uh, there's something very similar to that in the Eastern approach to the Filioque, where they say, you know, it, it doesn't belong there. Now, there are, there's a minority of Eastern Orthodox teachers who will say it's really not a theological problem. It is the Church has never defined dogmatically the relationship between the Son and the Spirit. So you can't say that the Filioque is heresy. The, the patriarch, he insisted it was absolute heresy to say that. Um, and uh, the Church has just historically had two different ways of speaking about the Trinity. Um, one, which starts with the unity, which is what the Western Church um, has done. The Lutherans are very much part of that tradition. And, and, and that sort of schemata, the, 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 the filioque, uh, is no problem whatsoever. The East, however, has, has started with the individual person's and therefore, the uh, the um, what should I call it? The hierarchy of the Father is very, very important in in the way that they teach on the Trinity. This is dating all the way back to the to the Cappadocians. For centuries, the Church existed with either way of confessing the Trinity. We recognized there were differences there, but neither excommunicated the other for them. Uh, but by this this time, things have really heated up, and uh, you know, it, 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 by the time of the schism, there is really a strong reaction in the East to any kind of um, filioqueism, they would call it. Uh, and in contrast to the Nicene Creed, which said that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, Photius and, and, uh, and the East in general have afterwards insisted, proceeds from the Father alone. Um, and they're pretty adamant on that. Where from the Bible would we see the filioque? Where will we uh, get the filioque from the Bible? There's uh, several spots that are important to us uh, as Lutherans as we've looked at that. Um, first of all, we confess that the actual words proceed from the Son are not 
biblical words, just like the Trinity is not a biblical word. Um, but we confess that it is the content of the biblical words where we have the genitive um, uh, of the Spirit of the Son. Um, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son. We say, look at this. If the Son has a relationship to the Spirit, if he can send the Spirit in time, how does one divine person send another with whom he does not have um, some sort of, uh, of, an, uh, of, of a relationship of origin? Notice that the Father does not come into the world, right? The Father sends the Spirit. The Father sends the Son. And we're also told in the Bible that the Son is, or the Spirit is the Spirit of the Son. Additionally, Jesus says in John 16 that everything that the Father has, except for being Father, understood, is mine. He is, everything that the Father has is mine. So everything that the Father has would include the, the spirating, the, um, the, the, uh, the spirits proceeding from the person of the Father, that then would also be that he comes from the person of the Son. That, that's the, the, like the, the typical Lutheran arguments uh, that were marshaled very much in favor of retaining the filioque. Historically, the Lutherans have been not, not necessarily adamant. I um, mean, that's part of the dogmatic tradition, if I can put that. Uh, Peepcorn, early in the, uh, well, in the middle of the 20th century, he, he argued, oh, it's no problem. I mean, it, it's been dogmatically a problem since we did it because of adding to, the, to a creed that was a universal creed. And he argued there would be no problem in dropping the, the, the filioque from the creed per se, not saying it's wrong. But saying that you know it, it was it was not the best idea to uh, you know canonically to add to the creed um, that belongs to the whole church by just a section of the church. Um, so Lutherans are you know sort of up in the air as to whether or not you want to go to the bat for keeping it in the creed per se, but not. Uh, we, we certainly are going to confess that dogmatically it's a true statement. The Spirit does proceed from the Son um, because the Spirit is the Spirit of the Son. What about uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy? Um, let's look at authority. Does, does the Eastern Orthodox tradition do they recognize an infallible authority other than that of Holy Scripture? Uh, yeah, they would say that uh, tradition itself is infallible, and Scripture is the biggest part of tradition to them. Uh, but it is not alone the uh, source of infallibility. They they regard uh, the 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 ongoing life of the Holy Spirit shaping the Church as being an infallible authority. And because of this, you get an idea, I don't know how to say this very well, um, the, the Church can't ever get anything wrong, because the Holy Spirit is, by definition, always leading her into all truth, so she's never wrong on anything. If the Church taught something, then that's the end of it. There it is. The Holy Spirit led it. That's the way it has to be. So th this leads to uh, things that you cannot find or teach from the sacred scriptures being asserted and held forth as absolutely true because the Church had, a, you know, had, had begun to teach it over time. The possibility of the Church going off the rails on some you know, particular item is acknowledged, but it says that that won't persist, and it'll only be for a little bit of time, and the Holy Spirit will correct. I mean, individual bishops can get something wrong. Um, and, and certainly there have been times where 
what, what was the position of, of what became the position of orthodoxy was in the minority in the East. Uh, for example, the, there was a real strong iconoclastic uh, movement throughout the Eastern Church for, for quite a while to, to get, you know, saying that it was wrong to have images of the saints and of Christ. It was wrong to do it. And then that was overcome and overturned. And they say, see, that's the triumph of orthodoxy. We see the Spirit leading the Church into all truth. And so uh, they, they, they certainly don't acknowledge the sort of situation that we saw as Lutherans in the West, where things had gotten so bad in the Church that really you had to turn to Scripture alone and say, wait a minute, what, what do the Scriptures teach about um, purgatory? What do the Scriptures teach about indulgences? Where do the scriptures teach that the bishop is, is by God, appointed to be the, uh, the fullness of the office of the ministry, and a presbyter, a priest, a pastor isn't? I mean, all those things that became for Lutherans very important, uh, you know, that the scripture was a check on, on, on what church practice was. The Orthodox regarded as, as a check, but as interpreted and confessed and lived by the Orthodox communion as a whole. Well, Does that the, make any sense? Oh yeah, and then well, well at the same time though they would uh, uh, reject um, papal authority, especially that of uh, of any kind of infallible authority, right? Oh yes, yeah. yeah there's no. I mean, they they would regard the pope as historically he was regarded first among equals. It is you know the, the recognition the recognition he is the bishop of the city where Saint Peter and Saint Paul were martyred. Um, and uh, he holds a, a special position in the Church by human right. Uh, the Lutheran Confessions acknowledge that. You know, the Bishop of, of Rome, now, that was historically a big deal. And the cool thing about the Bishop of Rome was he was always on the right Orthodox side of, of the great controversies that rocked the early Church. Why was he always on the right side? Because he was on the conservative scriptural side. He would always come in and say, well, you know, the, the answer to the matter is really just very simply given in Scripture. And so over and over again he was right. Then he began to think, well, I must be right because I say I'm right. And that's when things got bad. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, now, what about the Orthodox theological anthropology? Talk about that. Well, Orthodox theological anthropology differs from um, Lutheran anthropology, specifically in the matter of the extent of the corruption wrought by the fall. Um, to get the Orthodox teaching of the fall, you've got to recognize, first of all, they don't teach that there was a perfection at the beginning in the sense that God had finished with Adam and Eve. It was a work in progress, and uh, they, there was great potential for growth there, which they fell from. So God, and, and, and in the fall, they, the, the big thing that happened was death was introduced into the world. That, that's the, death is simply huge to an Eastern Orthodox Christian. More than, I mean, in, in the typical Western way of thinking, we speak about sin was introduced, and sin brought death along with it, they would many times speak, especially uh, those who are influenced by the, uh, the, the, the theologian Rom Romanides, would teach that, uh, that, that death was introduced, and death brought sin along with it. Um, we recognize there's a fundamental connection between death and sin, both East and West. But in the East, the emphasis is very much upon death, and so the big consequence of the fall is that people die. And Jesus came into this world to fix the problem of death. That's absolutely true. It's just not the whole of the truth. Uh, as our beloved Dr. Nagel likes to say, there's little D-death and there's big D-death. Uh, big D-death is eternal death, hell, separation from God. And that's what he came 
to fix first, foremost. And then with that, he fixes the little d death. Um, by, by dying our death, he destroys death itself. I've heard Lutherans uh, sometimes accuse Eastern Orthodox of, of denying original sin, and the Eastern Orthodox comes back and says, uh, no, we don't. Uh, sort out that conversation for us, and how are they speaking past each other? Um, the, the, the Eastern Orthodox, again, especially influenced by Romanides, um, and it's just like uh, he's a, a major uh, theologian here um, in, the, in the 20th century, uh, they, they, they would teach that... that uh, it's ancestral sin more than original sin. And they, they have a very strong mischaracterization of what we teach, as though the sin of Adam is imputed to us, and we are being blamed for something we didn't do. Now, that is not the Lutheran teaching. The Lutheran teaching, that's a very, the Calvinists speak that way, uh, but, but Krauth, the great Lutheran theologian of the 19th century, he's so helpful in this whole area of original sin. He says, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter is the sin of Adam corrupted us. I mean, we, ha- we, we bear consequences of the fall of Adam in our will, in our choosing, in everything about our life. We are fallen by our desires. So it's not like God is just laying Adam's sin on us and saying it's your fault, even though you didn't do it. We participate in the sin, as we like to say uh, when we sing the hymn by uh, Martin Franzman. In Adam, we have all been one, one huge rebellious man. We all have fled the evening voice that sought us as we ran. We fled our God, and fleeing him, we lost our neighbor, too. Each singly sought and claimed his own, each man his brother slew. So... Whereas the Orthodox would say, well, we're just, because of original sin, or because of ancestral sin, we are mortal, but there is no real effect on the will. You're still a free person. You're damaged, but you're still free in your will to choose God. Very, very uh, Wesleyan, almost in the way that they talk there, uh, Arminian. Um, and, and very different from us in saying, no, even the will has been bound. The will of a fallen human being in and of itself, is opposed to God. Um, they, they, they don't teach that. You, you just kind of touched on this, but, but elaborate more. Um, how does this anthropology affect justification, and do the, the Orthodox even talk much about justification? Yeah, I want to be clear. I, you, sometimes you hear a lot of people say that the Orthodox teach falsely on justification. I would, I would disagree in, the, in, in putting it that way. I would say the Orthodox do teach correctly on justification if you can get them on the topic. The problem is they don't let justification have its central place in the theological system. It is not the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ is not the heart, core, and center of orthodoxy, and they will free, they don't, they'll freely admit that. that. That's that's not where it's about. Because for them the big problem is, is, is death and the fact that Adam and Eve's development was arrested by the fall, then they need to be healed. And this healing takes place through a process that they, they like to call theosis, um, very much akin in many ways to what Lutherans called the mystical union, you know, uh, un- being united with God. The difference is, in Lutheranism, this theosis, or mystical union, we always confess to be the gift of God's coming to us through the Word and the sacraments, and Him coming and imparting His life to us. 
In orthodoxy, it tends to be more about, I mean, I'm, I hope I'm not harsh here, and I'm, it, it, it comes across as technique that, that you need to do um, to achieve this union with God. Uh, I, and there's many things that are important that they talk about. I mean, almsgiving, important there, living out lives of love. It, comes, it ends up coming across to a Lutheran ear as um, lifting up uh, a pattern of, of works has the the goal and not the goal the the method toward the goal of union with God, and uh, the end result of that I think is you know if, if you if you ask them do you, do you believe that, that that Christ has justified you that he has he has uh, shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sin they're going to say of course I believe that, but that the, the letting that justification hold center place in their system that is that is where I think they fall. Um, from a Lutheran perspective, they fall flat. Uh, what role does faith play in, uh, in how would they articulate faith? Well, they would say that you're saved by your faith. I mean, there's no question on that. But I think the definition of faith that they, they're so attuned to um, being afraid, I think, of what we would call antinomianism, that they always want to hammer back the faith. Faith is not merely receiving the gifts of God. Faith is being united with God. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it does receive his gifts, it celebrates his gifts, but uh, then the, the human response, the synergy, to us, uh, synergism is a, uh, a bad word to them, synergism is a good word. It, it, it means that in the act of salvation, human beings cooperate with God in achieving this, and this is part of how he heals us how he restores us. He, he gives us this ability to cooperate with him. Again, as Lutherans, we want to be careful. We say absolutely no cooperation um, until a person is regenerated and baptized. But, you know, the, the formula of Concord does say that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in great weakness and all the works that, that, that he does within us. So we can recognize, again, that there's something that, 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 that's true in what they're saying there, but they don't have that caveat at the beginning about the cooperation being um, only after a person has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They regard the very act of being converted as an act which a person participates with God in. Is the uh, indwelling of Christ central in all of this? Uh, yeah, the indwelling of Christ is very much uh, central. In fact, if you want to use the classical terms that Lutherans would use, uh, uh, the, their... Um, a material principle, if you will, uh, the, the, the thing in which their theology gathers around is theosis, is being transformed by the indwelling of Christ. Now that, that's, that's the goal to which everything is directed. Uh, how do you respond to some of those in the past um, uh, 20, 30 years or so who have who have tried to use Luther to defend that point, and they'll you'll go to to Luther's well, Galatians commentary and all that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a great deal of uh, like I said, there's a great deal of relationship between the Lutheran teaching of the Unio Mystica being united with Christ and uh, classical theosis. Uh, Luther himself did use that kind of language. He uses the language of becoming divine. Um, it, 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 it is it is in Great Galatians, um, his, his commentary on Galatians, where, you remember, the formula of Concord says, anything more on this topic, uh, on the, the righteousness of Christ, just go read Luther's Great Galatians. He nails it. 
Well, okay, in Great Galatians, Luther uses Vergrepsen. I mean, you, you, are, you are divinized to use this, that kind of language, um, which has been alive and, and fine in the West. The difference is that we don't regard that as the... Um, we don't regard that, number one, as something which we achieve or which we help to achieve. We regard it as a gift which God has bestowed upon us. Um, you know, most people, I mean, you know, Lutherans have a kind of visceral reaction when they hear from St. Athanasius the words that God became man so that man might become God. We go, oh, that sounds like Mormonism or something. But if you just add a few words, listen, if you say, God became a child of man that the children of men might become the children of God, and all of a sudden you go, oh, well, yeah, sure, amen. Um, and that's really at the heart of what uh, uh, the, the Lutheran teaching on mystical union is, too. God, God gives you everything that's his uh, by—he gives that uh, to you. He, t- he takes everything that's ours by nature to give us everything that's his by grace. Um, the happy exchange, as Luther loved to describe it. Uh, let's take a look at uh, the sacraments. Uh, how many sacraments does the Eastern Orthodox Church have, and, and what is their view of the sacraments? Well, the, the first thing about the, the, the sacraments is that they, they don't like the idea that there's a set number. Uh, and so you'll hear them, some of them will stick to uh, the, the medieval, the number that came from the medieval West, the seven. They certainly confess all of those. But they call these things the, the mysteries of God, and they, they would even include a whole bunch of other things besides. I mean, it depends on who you're reading uh, as an Orthodox uh, writer as to how he views the, the, the number of the sacraments. If we just run through them. Baptism, uh, they they teach as the as the, the, the creed states one baptism for the remission of sins. Although you'll sometimes find the Orthodox, I've a friend that it was attending a baptism where she heard an Orthodox priest specifically state, "We don't baptize this baby because it has any sin." Hmm. Now you'll never hear a Lutheran say that, mm-hmm. and I think you know you're going to hear many Orthodox who would wrinkle their brow over that too. Um, but but that kind of teaching is is really big there. You know, we're baptizing the baby because it's dying. You know, it, it, it's given unto death. It needs the gift of eternal life. Um, one baptism for the remission of sins. Uh, they certainly then have elevated what they call chrismation, which is, uh, uh, it, it was originally the post-baptismal anointing with oil to signify that in baptism you've received the Holy Spirit. That sort of swings out to become a thing unto itself. Um, and... Uh, uh, Dr. Nagel once said, you know, chrismation grows by robbery of baptism. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, it, it, the things they attribute to, to chrismation, that that's how you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, Scripture says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, attached to baptism, not to any uh, chrismation. Uh, then uh, the, the, think about the Eucharist. They certainly would teach, as, as we do, that the true body and blood of Christ are actually present in the sacrament of the altar. Like Rome, though, they like to stress that the big action in the supper is that the body and blood of Christ are offered as sacrifice to the Father in the Mass, They're, um, or the Eucharist, the Divine Liturgy, as they would call it, um, offered as sacrifice to the Father. I, you know, our stress on that is from the words of institution, where he says, he didn't say take an offer, he said take and eat, take and drink. Um, so we, we don't we, we certainly see the directionality of the sacrament as from him to us. Um, they, they see that as the bounce back, but it starts out from us to him. Uh, other sacraments they regard marriage as a sacrament. Uh, they regard uh, um, confession and absolution as a sacrament. Um, unlike Rome, they don't really have penances, or if they do, they regard a penance more as a uh, 
as a therapy for healing. I mean, the constant image is that humanity is sick and needs healing. And so the Church is intent throughout this on, on how she heals. The sacraments are there to heal you. That is a, a constant uh, refrain in Orthodoxy. Um, and uh, they certainly do the, uh, the anointing of people that are, that are dying. The ordination they regard as, as, as sacramental, too, how God uh, sets people into the office of the ministry. But they teach that, you know, to have a Church. There's a reason they don't. They do not regard us as Church, fundamentally, because we do not have the threefold office present in our midst. We don't have bishops, priests, and deacons. Again, you can't demonstrate that from Scripture, but they believe that is an absolute uh, sine qua non of the Church's life. And I may put it this way. Um, one of the, uh, the the big differences between the way a, a, an Orthodox thinks and a Lutheran thinks, the Lutheran secures the Church by means of the Word and Sacraments. In other words, if we find the Word and Sacraments at work, we know God's having Himself a church there. They do it the other way around. They secure the Word and Sacraments by being sure of their church. And so you'll frequently hear an Orthodox person say, well, we know we're the church, but we don't know what you are. <laughs> um, they're, they're, they're not saying that we're not church, but they're saying we're not saying you are. And uh, they, they can't know that because they believe that the, the Church is this um, outward structure that, um, that, that the Apostles, well, Christ planted the Apostles structured and put here in this world, and it has this outward shape. And if you're not having that outward shape and being in communion with those bishops who are in communion with each other, uh, you are not part of Church. See, we, do you see how that totally changes how you look at things? Oh, yeah. Never, never waste time arguing what is church with an Orthodox. We mean two entirely different things by the word. For us, church is this communion of all those baptized into Christ, sharing the faith of Christ, and having the hope of eternal life in Him. That's not what they mean by church. They mean the organization. Uh, let, suppose a lifelong Lutheran was to go to a Sunday morning service in the Eastern Orthodox Church what would he see? Uh, what, what what would he uh, experience? What would he be familiar with, and what would he, what would be completely unfamiliar to him? Okay, and probably the first thing that would, if I may characterize the difference between Eastern and Western liturgy this way, um, the Eastern liturgy is an ocean, and you feel like you've been dumped into an ocean, and you're not sure where it starts or where it ends. You're right there <laughs> in the middle. Of it. The, the Western liturgy is like a river; it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You can follow exactly where you are, and you're moving through it. So you come to an Orthodox church service, and the first thing you're not even sure about is when does it begin and when does it end? Because when you get there, stuff's already going on, and people are coming in. They keep on coming in. There's no set time to seemingly gather, and you're wondering, well, what, what's going on? And even when they come in in the middle, you'll see people go up to the front, light a candle, um, kiss an icon, go back to their uh, to stand and, and, and wait. Big, another big thing, many Orthodox churches, not all, but many, you'll notice there are no pews. The people stand. Actually, that used to be characteristic of the West, too. Um, that, that the liturgy was uh, held standing up. Uh, and uh, every time that the, you, you, you'll, you'll notice the basic structure is still there. You're going to hear a reading from an epistle. You're going to hear the reading of the gospel. You're going to hear uh, most places a homily. You're going to notice when they go to pray, what we call the prayer of the church. That's clearly there. You'll, and, and when you get to the, uh, uh, the consecration of the sacrament, very clear. You're going to have the holy, 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 same as we do. Um, they don't have the unused day in their service or anything like that. There's a different set of songs that they use for that, but the distribution of the sacrament, you know, the structure 
you'll notice, oh, that's, that's, that's very similar to our structure. But it's really overlaid with a whole bunch of stuff that we don't have. Uh, when you walk into the doors, first thing that strikes you is this, uh, the amount of pictures, the icons, everywhere, everywhere. And most of the time, plastering the front of the church in such a way that you can't even see the altar. It's behind this wall of icons. Um, and, and the priest is back there, uh, and that's where much of the liturgy is conducted. The, uh, the choir and the deacon sort of go back and forth to uh, connect what's happening behind that wall with the people out there. But you get a distinct feeling that uh, the choir, not, not so much the congregation, but the choir is what leads the liturgy. And the congregation is largely passive throughout the, the service. They, they listen, they, they're, they're, they, they do participate in some of the singing, but much of the singing is in the hands of the choir, the cantor, and uh, the deacon and the priest. So it's much more a sense of, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a passive sense. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, and, uh, well, what else? Uh, one of the weird things that you'd see during communion is they would uh, they will bless the, uh, the sacrament. But when it's distributed, it's distributed in such a way that they have combined the bread and the, the, the chalice, so the, 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 the Lord's body, if you will, is soaking in the wine, which is spooned up. And, of course, it's given, uh, they argue very strongly, that it should be given to any of the baptized, and therefore, I mean, who are in communion with the Orthodox Church. And so little children all the way to, to adults, you'll see them all communing, and they commune by coming to the priest and having him spoon it into their, their mouths. That was very different from our um, typical way of uh, distributing the sacrament. And additionally, you'll see um, blessed bread is up front, not, not consecrated to be the body of Christ, just what, what you didn't use from that loaf sliced up, and that's given to anybody who's in attendance that day as a gesture of hospitality to them. And uh, truthfully, it was, I, I believe, originated as strength to get through the long services. That's another thing you'll notice. Their liturgies go on quite a bit. They, la- they last a long time. To our day, to, in, our, in our day, we would think, well, that's Lutherans don't do that. Well, actually, um, at the time of the Reformation, typical uh, Sunday morning divine service would could easily go three hours in any of the city churches, easily three hours, uh, similar to what the Orthodox have now. I think that's about it, When you, uh, stuff that would strike. Oh, plus it will certainly strike you that you'll hear, uh, everybody laughs about this, you'll hear in the liturgy, let us complete our prayer to the Lord. That means you've still got about another hour to go. Now <laughs> 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 it's almost over. <laughs> so whereas a, a Lutheran preacher might say, in conclusion, and go on another four minutes, and that seems like a long no, time I... in the end. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Hi, uh, historically, has the the liturgy typically been in the vernacular uh, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition? Yes, it's been one of the things that has been. Uh, well, let me let me. Let me y- yes, mostly. Um, when when the liturgy went into uh, to Russia, it did retain for a long, long, long time the form of the language that was spoken at the time, um, Old Church Slavonic. Um, and, and to this day, I still think the Russians tend to use that as, as their liturgy. But, you know, the Eastern Church has the principle, and the Lutheran Confessions appealed to this when, when we wanted to go into the vernacular. We said, look, the, you know, the Greeks speak Greek. Why, why should we have to everybody speak Latin? We should be able to use the language of the people where the gospel is, is reaching. And uh, that, that is part of their heritage. Uh, go back to the icons. What is the, the, the teaching with, with the icons in the, in the Eastern Church? 
On well, the the, the, the last of the, the great uh, ecumenical councils uh, argued that um, well, we restored the use of icons. I mentioned before they celebrate this. They, it's this first Sunday in Lent. They celebrated the triumph of orthodoxy, and uh, they regard it as a fundamental confession of the incarnation. God became a man, and men can be pictured. So you can draw a picture of the Son of Man, the, the, the one who is born of Mary. He had real flesh and blood, and the icon is regarded as a confession of that. Uh, and so the icons, especially icons of Christ, became very, very important to them. Certainly other the icons of the, the other saints as well. Uh, from a, Again, from our perspective, it looks like a, a good thing. I mean, Lutherans uh, among the—we we are— um, the originally we really were the the sole non iconoclastic Protestants, right? I mean, if, if you go to my church, there are images of the evangelist hanging in my church. There's the, a crucifix upon the altar. There are images of Christ on the front wall. Um, Lutherans did this throughout throughout history. We were never ashamed or afraid to picture the saints. The difference is the Orthodox go beyond picturing it and letting it be a historical um, proclamation to us or a gospel proclamation, it becomes to them um, something that is an integral part of the act of worship, is to honor the icon. And they believe that the honor given to the icon passes to the one pictured in the icon. So if, if you kiss the icon of Christ, you've kissed Christ. If you've kissed the icon of St. Mary, you've kissed the blessed Theotokos. Um, if you kiss, um, you know, the icon of St. John, John has received the kiss from you. Uh, and, and this is why this important uh, part of their, of their worship is this coming in and greeting all of the saints around the room. You'll watch them. The people will come in and literally go from icon to icon, greeting the saints who are gathered for worship. I mean, it's a beautiful confession that when you come into Christ's presence, you are in the presence of all his saints. But you know, it seems to go for us uh, a tab beyond what the scriptures themselves would lead us to conclude about uh, a picture. Uh, St. Gregory uh, in the Western Church, he, he, he had to deal with uh, a bishop down in, um, oh, where was it? Uh, Syracuse, I think, who had, uh, no, that's not right. I can't remember where the guy was. But anyway, the guy had, had, had noticed people venerating art and had smashed the art. And Gregory writes, don't smash the art, just teach them not to venerate it. Teach them to give the honor to Christ in their hearts and let the art remain. That's sort of the Lutheran position. Maybe a, a minor point, but talk about the insistence um, on the uh, the Greek Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, opposed to the Masoretic text. Um, yeah, I have a really good friend who, uh, who always put it like this to me. He said, uh, uh, the only Hebrew you need to know is LXX, <laughs> which is, of course, the abbreviation for the, the Septuagint. The Septuagint was, by and large, the Old Testament that the early fathers used most of the time, and uh, most of them were not familiar with, with Hebrew. The big exception in that regard was St. Jerome, who gave us a, you know, a, a rendering of the—when he when he'd put the Vulgate together, the Latin translation of the Bible, he did— use the, um, the, the, the text that is the basis for what we now call the Masoretic text. I mean, you know, that's, of course, several centuries later. But uh, the, their insistence on, on that particular um, version or translation was simply because, again, that was what the, the early fathers were mostly using, um, and, and so they, they just continued to use that. And the, there, there is a concern. Did, did 
when the Masoretes added the vowels to the text, um, did they point the text whenever they could away from a prophecy to Christ? Um, I mean, there was that sort of suspicion, I think, running behind. Why would you rely on, on a text that the Jews amended after the time of Christ? Uh, and, of course, there's not all that much difference between a Hebrew Masoretic text and the, uh, um, the Septuagint. I mean, you can clearly recognize the same uh, accounts running through them. And uh, lastly, Pastor Whedon, uh, there, there has been um, uh, a handful uh, of, of Lutherans, even Lutheran pastors who have, who have left the Lutheran Church and gone to the, the Eastern Orthodox Church. What, in your estimation, uh, is the appeal well, there's a number of things that I think are appealing, and of course, you know, I, I assume many of your hearers know I was I, very, very almost in that group. Um, the, the 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 stability of the liturgy, I think, is one of the big drawing cards uh, to the you know when you when you when you look at the the state of contemporary Lutheranism, and you realize how hard sometimes it can be to find. I'm a friend that wrote me not too long ago, a layperson. Uh, and he's 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 down in the, the the area around Atlanta. He says I can't even find there's not there's not a Lutheran church here that even offers a liturgy on a Sunday morning. Um, he says I, I don't know where to go. And so I think he did end up. You know he says I I, I don't want to sin, but I, I I think I'm you know he's heading down to the um to the to the Antiochian church there in town because he says at least I know I'm getting the liturgy there. And Steve Hine, Dr. Hine, wrote a fabulous article on this, and if you go to my blog, you can, if you Google Hein, I think this article will come up because I reprinted the whole thing. He says, the thing is, the, the attraction of the East is that there are many things that are valuable among us, that, that we hold to be valuable. This, this generation of pastors who were raised up after the time of the strife of the 70s, they're, they're not formed by the, the battle for the Bible, per se. But then they were taught to value the liturgy, to value the office of the Holy Ministry. And then they see these things being attacked inside of the Lutheran Church, and they look over to a church where they seem to be quite stable, quite secure. I mean, the liturgy is very stable in an Orthodox community. And they think, oh, maybe that's where I need to be then. What, 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 what that comes at the price of is losing justification as the centerpiece, the, the core of what Christ has um, given and done for His Church, and uh, I think you get, I'd invite anybody check out any of the pastors. You know, check out the sermons. Check out how the sermons change when uh, a man becomes Orthodox. Uh, they they do change, and what really moves out of the center is this wonderful message of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Not that they're denying it, but it no longer has the central place that it really needs to hold, that you see it hold in the New Testament itself. We've been talking with Pastor Will Whedon. He's pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. Thank you, Pastor Whedon, for joining us for Table Scraps. Hey, I really appreciated the invitation. hope you guys have a great day. You as well. Don't forget to check out our website at tabletalkradio.org. You can, again, you can respond with your comments on what you heard just now uh, on the podcast page or sending us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org or call, call our voicemail system at 866, uh, excuse me, 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-SOLA. Uh, you, you can uh, respond to what you heard. You want to stay tuned for future Table Scraps. We continue our series on comparing 
the Lutheran Church to other Christian denominations. Next up, Calvinism, and we'll be joined by Vicar Andrew Packer of St. Paul Evangelical Lutheran Church in Lockport, Illinois. Uh, tune again next time to Table Scraps on tabletalkradio.org.